Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hi there, I'm Randad Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. 2023 was a great year for movies and a weird year for movies. The SAG strike prevented actors from promoting their work. Marvel and Disney flicks underperformed. But Barbie was both a massive box office hit and a cultural moment. As we wrap up the year, we hear from film critics about 2023's standout movies and the trends they noticed, including unexpected storylines about women and examinations of evil. And of course, we want to hear what kind of movies you were drawn to and which ones did not disappoint. Join us. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Did you see a lot more movies this year, or find yourself going to the theater more? If so, you're not alone. A common thread in a lot of best movie of the year write-ups has been the marked shift from the pandemic slump, and the fresh variety of movie releases in both plot lines and styles. I don't think we have enough hot dogs. The art of cinema is in good shape in the U.S., declared the New Yorker. But if you were unable to take in the bounty, don't worry, we've got you covered with today's panel of film critics and listener recommendations. We're also going to do our best to avoid spoilers. So keep that in mind as you call us with your film recommendations at 866-733-6786. Post them on Instagram, Discord, X, Twitter. Email them to forum at kqed.org. Let me tell you who's joining us. Kristen Meinzer is co-host of the podcast Movie Therapy with Rafer and Kristen. Welcome back, Kristen. Thanks so much for having me back. And we've also got Dave Schilling back with us, contributing writer at LA Times Image. Hey, Dave. Hello. Thanks for having me. And Alyssa Wilkinson, movie critic at the New York Times. Alyssa, glad to have you as well. Hey, it's great to be here. So, Alyssa, you've also said that it felt like movies were back this year. So what changes did you notice? What makes you say that? I think, you know, most of us know that it kind of started or started feeling that way with the Barbie and Oppenheimer um, extravaganza this summer. Uh, I I rarely remember feeling so excited about a movie weekend, um, mostly because it felt like everyone else was really excited about it, too. But then we've sort of seen that continue throughout the year. You know, different movies have performed well. 
either at the specialty box office or blockbuster kind of level. And um, people are talking about movies. It's it's actually really exciting to watch, especially after a few years where things were pretty dire. Yeah. Well, Kristen, I was struck by the fact that you saw 2023 as a good year for women in film. And that not necessarily about Barbie, really, but you saw a lot of films both by and about them with interesting storylines. Tell me what stood out to you. Yeah, I loved this year for women in the movies, women of various races, of various ages, with various storylines and sexual orientations. Uh, You started off this entire segment with a clip from May, December, that fabulous hot dog scene (laughs) with with Julianne Moore. But there, there were so many others with Uh, interesting female characters from Bottoms, which is about a teenage fight club, to Quiz Lady, where we got to see Sandra Oh play a reckless, uh, happily promiscuous, uh, drug-taking, wild older sister to a younger sister played by Aquafina. We got to see women be uh, physically fighting, like in polite society, doing martial arts, or going on journeys with their friends uh, and behaving badly, like in Joyride. There were so many great roles for women this year. I I was excited. Barbie, I think, made a lot of people think more about women in the movies. But full disclosure, I don't even think that was the best movie for women this year. There were so many other great movies for women. Yeah, a lot of people have mentioned Sofia Coppola's Priscilla about Priscilla Presley. What did you think about that? Oh, that is in my top five movies of the year. I absolutely adored Priscilla. Full disclosure, I am somebody who grew up in kind of an Elvis-loving household. We went on a road (laughs) trip when I was a kid to Graceland. I read Priscilla's memoir that this movie is based on when I was way too young to read it, and then listened to the audio book again this year, which was really interesting since she narrates it. And you can hear in the book what she emphasizes, what she laughs at, what she is still enamored with about Elvis. And the movie is so deceptive because it takes that perception of 14-year-old Priscilla being pursued by this wildly famous, probably the most famous man in the world at the time. And that pursuit feels like romance in the movie. And, you know, on the one hand, it's like, is this a princess fantasy? Is this icky? Is this grooming? What is this? Why is it being presented as so romantic? But then by the end of the movie, we see... Well, don't give away too much. Don't give away too much. I won't say it. I won't (laughs) say it. Over time, we see what happens between the two of them because there is something very creepy about a grown man wanting to pursue a 14-year-old. So um, I'm not going to spoil it, but I will say it's so masterfully done because in 14-year-old Priscilla's eyes, this really is a great romance. But as she gets older, we see it as more than a romance. Mm, We see it for a lot of other things. Well, and Alyssa, you mentioned that and also highlighted Priscilla as an example of one of 2023's several unconventional biopics. Curious what made Priscilla different to you in terms of the way that it portrayed sort of a biopic in quotes. Yeah, you know, a biopic often we think of as following a formula where it's like, you know, when they were young, this happened, and then they reached a point, they became famous, and then there was fallout. And that's often kind of the structure of a biopic. Or, you know, they won a war, or they led their country to great victory. This is actually using someone's 
life to tell a different kind of story, right? To t there's a there's a story within the story that it's telling, and in this case, you know, I agree, it's a lot of those same things, and it's also the same story that Sofia Coppola is always interested in, which is a young woman who is trapped in some way and uh, who kind of grows through that experience and tries to find something um, within herself throughout that. And you know, every one of her movies kinds of kind of has that story, and that's why I think. Priscilla is so interesting because she was able to locate that story inside another historical figure, just like she did with Marie Antoinette years ago. Yeah. Well, again, we're getting your movies of the year and listeners, when you share them, tell us why you liked it so much, why you are recommending it today, which is also what I'm going to ask Dave right now. One of your favorite movies from this year was Killers of the Flower Moon. So tell us why, Dave. Well, <clears throat> excuse me. It's this is the season for holiday illnesses. So if I cough, that's why. <laughs> um, the, I, this is a movie that was very controversial. I think a, a lot of people felt like a movie about the Osage should have been more about the Osage, and I, I I totally agree with that. I think it's important to say that up front, and also say movies should be made by people who've experienced some of these things maybe more often than happens now. Um, but I love this movie because it was. It was an unabashedly long, ambitious, um, odd film where it felt like Leonardo DiCaprio was specifically miscast. <laughs> that doesn't happen mm. very often in in film with big movie stars. Is let's put this guy who's always been known as this very uh, verbose, loquacious, charming actor, and make him the the dumbest person in the movie. Um, I thought it was a, it was a great choice. A beautifully shot movie. The Robbie Robertson score was fantastic. Um, I, I can't say enough about Lily Gladstone. Every award that she wins this year is well-deserved. Um, watching Martin Scorsese kind of do these audacious projects at his age is really wonderful to mm. see. So as as much as it was controversial and, and maybe problematic in some ways, I thought it was a fantastic movie. Yeah, actually, all three of you mentioned that you would have loved to have seen more of a focus on Lily Gladstone's character and her family. But Alyssa, talk about this film for you, just in terms of, I think you also did feel like Scorsese did a good job telling a really important story about America. Yeah, you know, Scorsese often is making stories about how he or someone with his sort of background, his upbringing, whatever, um, are complicit in different kinds of, you know, crime or wrongdoing that has injustice that has happened in different periods of time and definitely often in America. And I think, you know, a key kind of factor, and this is hard to talk about without <laughs> spoiling the film, but a key factor in this movie that has gone under discussed by kind of talk about representation is that it is very explicitly a movie about how uncomfortable he is with the fact that this story has been used, not just by him, but by by the FBI, um, you know, to to kind of bolster their own storytelling at the expense of the Osage. And that's very much text in the film, um, you know, and, and that's kind of the framing device for the film. So I think it's important to kind of not forget how the movie begins and ends when we're talking about this one um, and what it sort of means um, in the in the grander scheme of things. But it does feel like 
you know, every movie he's made in the past 10 years or so has been exploring some kind of confessional aspect of his feelings about being a storyteller who tells these kinds of stories. And this is fitting in with previous films like The Irishman and Silence and those films as well. I think it was you who wrote about this, but the film's Osage language consultant, Christopher... Cote or Cote told the Hollywood Reporter, mm-hmm. or no, it was Hollywood Reporter, sorry, that Scorsese did a, a great job, but the film wasn't made for an Osage audience. But can you share yes. a little bit more about that criticism? You know, it's an interesting criticism because he's he's not really criticizing the film as much as the industry that produces um, <laughs> this sort of thing, right? It, you know, a lot of what he said was, this is not a film that would have gotten made, or at least not with this budget, without someone like Scorsese attached. And he's completely correct. You know, the reason this movie gets made is because, you know, arguably the greatest living American director wants to take it on and tell the story. And I think Scorsese is well aware of that. Again, the way he starts and ends the film is pretty explicitly approaching that subject. Um, But, you know, Hollywood for so long and still today basically favors um, you know, mainly white men to make movies, and that's still basically the case and gives them big budgets. Um, and, you know, in some cases that's merited, in some cases it's maybe less merited, but the the criticism really is about the industry as a whole, um, which I think is really in harmony with what the movie itself says. Yeah. Kristen, do you want any, want to add any final thoughts about Killers of the Flower Moon? That hasn't been well, I just yet. want to second everyone's sentiments about Lily Gladstone. She really is fantastic in this movie and does deserve all the accolades she's receiving. Um, and and I think that a lot of people are learning things that they didn't know before, thanks to this movie, important things about U.S. history. And so I appreciate that side of things, but I do wish that Scorsese took that extra step. He, in adapting this book, already shifted the focus from it being a whodunit detective sort of story to, you know, focusing on Leonardo DiCaprio's character. And I wish he would have just gone that extra step further and just made it about Molly and her family and all of these predatory forces around them. Kristen Meinzer is co-host of the podcast Movie Therapy with Rafer and Kristen. Alyssa Wilkinson is movie critic for The New York Times. And Dave Schilling is contributing writer at LA Times Image. We're talking about the movies of 2023 with them and with you. Stay with us for more after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Looking back on the movies of 2023, you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim, and we want to invite you, our listeners, to tell us what was your movie of the year? What kind of movies were you in the mood for in 2023, and why? Did you notice a theme in this year's movies? Did you go to the movie theater more often this year? What brought you out? Your critiques, your love letters to the movies of the year. We're joined by Alyssa Wilkinson, movie critic at the New York Times, Dave Schilling, contributing writer at LA Times Image, and Kristen Meinzer, co-host of the podcast Movie Therapy with Rafer and Kristen. And this listener writes, Linoleum with Jim Gaffigan. It was a little weird, which I love, and low budget, but incredibly clever and well done. Just wait for the twist. (laughs) And let me go to Gregoire in Menlo Park. Hi, Gregoire, you're on. Hi, good morning, Mina, Kristen, Alyssa, Dave. (laughs) <laughs> so, <laughs> my movie pick from this year, you you might have already been planning on mentioning it, is Past Lives uh, by mm-hmm. Celine uh, Song. Lovely, lovely film. Very, very emotionally engaging. It's, you know, the story of friendships and, and the paths our lives take, uh, told through the lens of a Korean-American uh, immigrant who is a, a theater maker, a playwright, yeah. And I just found it so overwhelming and in the best possible way and, and cathartic and makes me think about longing and, and all these things. The camera work is is incredible. It's got its own language. I mean, every shot is, is so beautifully rendered and the way that the actors were directed, I think just there's something so satisfying about it in so many ways. Mm. Well, thanks for that reflection. Actually, Alyssa, I think this was one of your favorites of the year, too. So tell us more about Past Lives. Yeah, it was number two on my list right behind Killers of the Flower Moon. Um, And I think that's significant in part because I saw it all the way back at Sundance last year, which is January. So it really, I kind of walked into the theater having seen a couple of Celine Song's plays here in New York, but it's her debut film, and walked out saying, oh, that's going to be one of the best movies of the year. Um, It stars Greta Lee, who I think a lot of people will find familiar, and you know, she is, she's a, a, she grows up in Korea, she immigrates to Canada and then to New York and sort of, you know, marries a man but has this childhood sweetheart. And you think you kind of know where this story is going to go, but it absolutely does not. And I think that's part of its charm is that, you know, we get so used to the same storylines over and over. And what we get here is something that felt much more true to life to me and to the way that people actually talk and act and live their lives. And that does not make it less effective. I think it makes it more effective. So I really strongly suggest people seek it out. It's a really lovely little film and a very promising debut for Celine Song. 
Yeah. And it was by A24, which yeah. kind of had a moment this year. It also released Priscilla. Uh, talk about that. I know we've turned to you a lot, Alyssa, this past year for your great coverage of the writer's strike and the SAG strike mm. and so on. And I'm just curious if you think that that in part contributed to A24's success because it wasn't a struck studio? Yeah, I mean, so A24 is not a member of the AMPTP, which is the like trade organization that the big studios, you know, like Disney or Paramount belong to and a lot of other um, production companies. And so it wasn't among the companies that were struck. Uh, in the the strikes this year, um, they still for so for instance when they wanted actors to promote Priscilla, they still had to get a waiver from the union, but they you know they could get it because they weren't struck. On top of it, A twenty four doesn't really produce so much as distribute movies, and so they're kind of picking up stuff that they think is interesting. Um, you know when they produce something, it's it's very much along kind of an art. You know, I think of them as a as a uh, company that manages to do artistically interesting and daring work that also is pretty mainstream in the sense that, you know, most people could watch it and get something out of it. And they've been very good at um, making sure that work makes it out to the public. And on top of it this year, they were one of the few companies that was able to have actors actually going out and doing panels and, you know, red carpets and talking about the movies that they were involved with, which I think contributed to their success. And yeah, they've had a lot of hits this year, you know, relative art house hits and a lot of um, really great work coming out of um, out of what they're doing. Yeah. Dave, you think this is also because they basically design films for younger audiences? Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of films that come out every year that seem like they're designed specifically for the studio executives. Or for the stock market or the bottom line. I, I, I'm thinking very specifically about Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. Mm. A movie that I'm unclear who it was for. Um, I I love Indiana Jones. I'll be honest. I'm I'm old enough to remember watching these movies. But imagine somebody 10, 15 years younger than me who is going to the movies, who is going to see things like Bodies, 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 which is an A24 movie, or going to see Barbie or... Oppenheimer or whatever like these are movies that for whatever reason appeal to younger audiences either they star younger actors they're about things that are universal like Barbie that kind of get passed down from generation to generation or they're very specifically marketed and targeted towards younger audiences I don't know who Indiana Jones was for so there's like this disconnect in the studio system where you make these movies about IP because they're IP not yeah. because there's a specific audience demographic that will go to see them. Well, we've got more listener recommendations and questions coming in. Alan writes, from what I've heard, I'm eager to see poor things. However, my wife does not want to see it because the same director, Yorgos Lanthimos, I hope I'm saying that name right, made The Lobster, mm-hmm. another movie that was widely acclaimed by both critics and the public, which we thought was one of the worst movies we've ever seen. What do you think? Is poor things different enough to be worth seeing. Hmm. Kristen, you want to take that? Oh, yes. Uh, I think Poor Things has a lot going for it. Primarily Emma Stone, who is just fantastic. If you don't know the story, Emma Stone plays something of a Frankenstein's monster to Willem Dafoe's Dr. Frankenstein. He implants a baby's brain inside her fully grown body. And we watch as she goes from kind of this, you know, animalistic, 
uh, not quite human with just feral appetites and violent tendencies into a fully formed autonomous human, much to the chagrin of most of the men around her who prefer her to be undeveloped in mind and yet sexually mature in body, if you will. And she just does such a great job of evolving through this movie and learning to see the world beyond those feral desires into, uh, you know, emotional and intellectual places that uh, babies just aren't at. And it's so fun to watch her do it. And so I'd say, if anything, see it for Emma Stone's performance, which is quite something. I'd also say that uh, Mark Ruffalo is hilarious as one of her <laughs> male suitors. He's very funny and just an idiot. He, he's a man baby in his own way. And the costumes, it's just a beautiful movie to look at because the costumes and art direction are so beautiful as well. Hmm. We're talking about the most acclaimed films of the year, the underappreciated films that deserve your attention with Alyssa Wilkinson, Kristen Meinzer, Dave Schilling, and you, our listeners, you are sharing your movie of the year and why at 866-733-6786 on our social channels at KQED Forum by emailing forum at kqed.org, telling us if you went to the movie theaters more often and what brought you out and telling us if you noticed any films that were particularly speaking to the times that we live in. Paul writes, for example, this year I discovered that AMC theaters have a movie pass where for $25 a month I can see up to three movies in a week. Since the movies are effectively free, I've seen movies that I would never imagine paying for, such as Paw Patrol... <laughs> And a movie spoken in Hindi. I really believe that the movie passes are your best entertainment value you could find anywhere. Wow, that's really nice to hear and inspiring me to try to get out to the theaters more this year. Um, you know what I realized when it came to favorite films, Dave, that I'm not sure I got your number one. What was your film of the year? Oh, it was Oppenheimer, I think. Uh, um, either that or Godzilla Minus One, which is an interesting <laughs> uh, kind of pairing of two movies that are ostensibly about the same thing, which is the dropping of the atomic bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Mm, yeah. And the effect that it had on Japan is is very articulated in Godzilla <clears throat> from the beginning, from the beginning of the franchise. Um, but this is the anniversary movie i think it's the 70th anniversary of godzilla so it kind of it goes back in time it's a period piece about um the immediate aftermath of world war ii and japan rebuilding and then godzilla showing up as they're trying to put everything back together mm -hmm. whereas oppenheimer is about the creation of the bomb the creation of of this weapon that will change the world forever and i, I think they're both important to think about together because a lot of the criticism of Oppenheimer was, again, to go back to Killers of the Flower Moon, a movie that doesn't center things properly for our, our current sensibilities. Um, but if you look at these movies together, you see them as this kind of like pairing that gives you both perspectives on this event, right? The American guilt and the Japanese uh, grief and, and how those those two things kind of meld together. So I guess my favorite movie is both of those movies. Kristen, you were less of an Oppenheimer fan, right? <laughs> yeah, I have to confess, I found it overly long and quite frustrating. And the friends I saw it with, um, who weren't American, couldn't even parse the difference between the two trials or what order things were going in. And I, I understand, you know, 
we, we should be creative with our filmmaking, but sometimes telling things out of order works better than other times. And I don't think it worked so well in Oppenheimer. I also just really did strongly disliked, maybe just hated how the Manhattan Project was depicted with, you know, this was a project that had the most brilliant men and women in the world working together. And the movie essentially just distilled all the women down to one female character who, you know, didn't want to fetch coffee. And that's not at all what the Oppenheimer Project was like at all. And again, I know that movies should take creative licenses. They don't have to be fact-based entirely. But I, I thought that it was a real missed opportunity to really showcase how important women were scientifically to this terrible, terrible project. And I, I just think what I liked better, if, if you really want to learn more about the Oppenheimer Project and how the Manhattan Project was a, a playground for all of these scientists where they just drank and partied and had sex at night and did great scientific discovery by day, I would recommend instead seeing the trials of J. Robert Oppenheimer from 2008. The American Experience made it. It's an outstanding film that really puts side by side those two things, mm -hmm. the gluttony and the fun of essentially being at an adult sleepaway camp set against the horrors of what they were making. Well, speaking of more sort of three-dimensional depictions, women, one of your favorites this year was Eileen. Tell us about Eileen. Oh, yes. Eileen tells the story of a young woman working at a youth prison by day and each night coming home to a verbally abusive alcoholic dad who is a retired cop. Her life is ugly with a lot of misogyny, rage, a lot of suppressed urges until the glamorous Dr. Rebecca begins working at the prison as a psychologist. And this movie is so not what I thought it was going to be. I went in thinking, this is going to be Carol, you know, two women, one a little older than the other in the 1960s at Christmas time, maybe there's something between them. But oh boy, what I thought it was versus what it turns into it just knocked my socks off, and it's rare that I get so surprised by a movie, but it literally shocked me and took my breath away. I was yeah. not getting what I thought I was getting with this movie. Well, um, Alyssa, women clearly a connective thread in 2023 for Kristen. For you, it was evil, right? Tell mm -hmm. us why. Yeah, I think if we look at some of the best movies of the year, the ones we've been talking about, um, and in, it also include in there um, a movie that's coming out this weekend, The Zone of Interest, which is kind of a tough sit, but I think an important one. Yeah, the trailers um, are intense. Yeah, it's a, it's pretty intense. And, you know, that one is about a, a family of a Nazi commandant living just outside the walls of Auschwitz. Um, and that's, you know, we're not seeing inside the walls. We're seeing their lives. It's a lot of people tossed around the term banality of evil in talking about that movie. And they're completely correct. But I think, you know, you can apply that to Killers of the Flower Moon. You can apply that very easily to Oppenheimer and what it's depicting and a whole number of other films. Um, you know, for me, when I think about evil. I don't think about like um, negativity or something like that. I'm thinking about how easy it is for us to be complicit in evil just because we don't do good or we don't stop what we see happening, um, which I think is something is on you know, lots of people's minds right now at this point in history. And the movies really seem to be grappling with that. You know, if we think about Ernest, for instance, in Killers of the Flower Moon, you know, he does bad things, but worse, he kind of just takes orders from, from his uncle. And that's, you know, that's sort of his excuse. I was just doing what I was supposed to do. And, 
you know, that's that's exactly what Hannah Arendt meant when she talked about the banality of evil. And so we see that all over the place in the movies. And then, you know, conversely, some of my favorite movies of the year were about people who are kind of actively combating that um, that kind of evil, but they're doing it through connecting with others and talking and bringing those things to light. And I think that was a really important thread as well. I don't think any of that is surprising given kind of the moment in world history that we're in and the things that people are talking about and thinking about. Um, But it was interesting to see it threaded so clearly through some of the major films this year. Yeah, Dave, I think you felt like one of the themes you saw, kind of similar to that but different, was predation, I guess, or like predators and prey, and that you saw Saltburn as exemplifying that? Uh, Yeah, that was a movie I did not like at all. (laughs) Uh, And I think it's very divisive, and some people love it, some people don't. Um, But it's a movie about a middle-class British kid who goes off to Oxford and essentially um, kills off everyone in this family. I don't know if it's a spoiler. It's not a spoiler. You've seen the trailers. It's He's the bad guy, all right? Barry Keegan is the bad guy. And um, it's, this, it's this movie about taking and what does it mean to take and who is really the victim in a story. And I think we live in this world, sadly, where those relationships exist everywhere in business, uh, in in friendships, in in sexual relationships. There is there is the top and there's the bottom. There's the predator and the prey, and and it, that in, influences how we look at everything, how we look at social media, how we look at um, making money, how we look at dressing up and 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 feeling fancy and going to a party. I'm the one who's going to get something out of someone career-wise at this networking event. You know, taking instead of giving back is the the sort of watchword of our society. If it's the environment, if it's personal relationships, and I think a lot of movies have have this year um, shown us that. And I think Saltburn is probably the number one movie on that list. Obviously, Killers of the Flower Moon as well is a, is a film about taking from someone, taking resources from someone. Uh, it's a dark thought, but it's something that we need to grapple with more and more. Dave Schilling is contributing writer at LA Times Image. Alyssa Wilkinson is movie critic for the New York Times. Kristen Meinzer is co-host of the podcast Movie Therapy with Rafer and Kristen, and they are our panelists for our look back at the year in movies of 2023. We'll have more with them, and and I see your recommendations, listeners. I'll get to those right after the break. Stay with us. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the movies of 2023, the connective threads between them, what they reflect about the times we live in, the most acclaimed and the most underappreciated that you feel deserves attention. You, our listeners, are sharing yours with our other listeners and with Alyssa Wilkinson of The New York Times, Dave Schilling of LA Times Image, and Kristen Meinzer of the podcast Movie Therapy with Rafer and Kristen at 866-733-6786 by emailing Forum forum at kqed.org or posting on our social channels at KQED Forum. Sarah writes, I love the charming movie Jewels with Ben Kingsley, Jane Curtin, and Harriet Sansom Harris. It's about a visiting alien and new friend sharing an exciting secret as they grow old together. I think it flew totally under most people's radar, but it's definitely worth watching. Another listener writes, there were many great movies this year, and as always, the industry waits until the end of the year to show some blockbusters. I especially like The Burial with Jamie Foxx and 26.2 to Life, 20 Days in Mariupol, and The Last Repair Shop. Ah, yeah. Can you discuss more documentaries? Actually, Alyssa, I think you were alluding to a documentary when you talked about one that was not about evil. It was actually about people fighting evil, people trying to uplift others. Can you tell us about A Still Small Voice? That was documentary, right? Yeah, that is. um, That's an incredible documentary. My favorite doc of the year, um, which again, I saw back in January. So I guess there's a theme here. Um, Yeah. So Luke Lorenzen is the director. He his previous documentary was called Midnight Family. And it was about this family in Mexico City who run an ambulance company and are, you know, always kind of seeing people at their worst and caring for them and just what that's like. A Still Small Voice is set at New York's um, Mount Sinai Hospital here in the city. during the pandemic. And there is a group of kind of, you know, ecumenical interfaith uh, chaplains who are residents for the year at the hospital. And that means that they are caring for patients who, again, are confronting some of the hardest moments in their lives. And they're even having to confront them, you know, during the pandemic without having to, you know, having their parents or their family or their friends nearby because they can't come into the hospital. So these chaplains are in some ways their only kind of connection to, you know, to a a spiritual or humane existence. And it the film um, focuses specifically on one resident named Mati, um, who's very idealistic and uh, throughout the course of the film finds herself struggling with this work and with burnout and with her relationship with her supervisor. It's a really, really remarkable film. It's in limited theaters right now and it will make its way to streaming. But, you know, it sounds difficult, but it's actually kind of uplifting and bittersweet at the same time. And I would highly recommend it, um, you know, to anyone who's kind of interested in mortality and mercy and all of these things that people have to confront when they are in a hospital. Mm, Wow. I watched the trailer for that, too, and it seemed really, really powerful. Um, It is, yeah. Well, well, Kristen or Dave, do you have a doc that you want to recommend, a documentary for our listener? 
Well, my favorite documentary was actually a documentary series this year on Amazon Prime. It's called Shiny Happy People, and it's about people who have escaped the Institute in Basic Life Principles, which is now well understood to be a cult, but used to be seen as kind of a wholesome organization for Christian homeschoolers, uh, the most famous followers of the IBLP being the Duggars of 19 Kids and Counting fame. And the documentary follows people who have left the organization and are coming forward with allegations of financial abuse, sexual abuse, uh, of being controlled, of the misogyny that is there. Uh, women whose only role in life to uh, meet the standards of the IBLP are to stay at home and to have as many children as humanly possible, thus the Duggars with their 19 kids and counting. Uh, it, it really is just a fascinating look at a religion that was packaged and sold to us as something very wholesome on TLC and in other places, including best-selling books, but uh, shows that it was anything but wholesome. It, it still exists, but it's vastly less powerful than it used to be, the IBLP. So again, mm -hmm. that's called Shiny Happy People. Well, the Zisner writes, I loved the movie Radical. It's about the power of education and based on a real story. It takes place in Mexico and follows a teacher who changes the lives of his students by just caring about them. It's incredibly powerful. My boyfriend and I watched it in theaters and we were crying the whole way through. And Basil on Discord writes, The Holdovers is my new favorite Christmas movie. I watched it after a personal tragedy and found it incredibly cathartic without being overly heavy. It felt like a strong, reassuring hug or a hearty bowl of soup on a cold day. Going in, I was wary of how the one black woman supporting character played by the wonderful Divine Joy Randolph would be written. It wasn't perfect, but it was so much better than expected. Holdovers was on your list, right, Dave? Yes, it was. Um, it's one of those movies they don't make anymore. Nobody, not nobody, I mean, because I'm sure there are, there are exceptions to this rule, but it is less common that you get a mid-budget um, dramedy yeah, that yeah. is not um, very specifically trying to tackle a social issue. That it's just a, a story, a kind of like charming, um, wistful, nostalgic tale. Um, and Alexander Payne has been making those movies for his whole career. So I'm not surprised that this movie touched me as much as it did and, and the listener and other people. Um, Paul Giamatti is fantastic. As, as said, Divine Joy Randolph, wonderful, uh, deserved Golden Globe nomination for her performance as a grieving mother who also works at this prep school on the East Coast. Um, yeah, if you want to see a movie that's going to put you in that holiday mindset, that's going to transport you to a snowy enclave as we all live in most of us here live in california and don't get that um, i highly recommend the holdovers <laughs> so in the dramedy category may december i think was generating buzz this week because it was nominated as a comedy and not a drama Alyssa wilkinson this is todd haynes new film that like literally just came out right i don't think i have not yeah. seen it yet but i would love for you to just tell us a little bit about this film <laughs> sure i mean i think it's worth saying that um when i first saw it it was at Cannes at the premiere and they had scheduled killers of the flower moon which is three and a half hours long famously and this one back to back so i was watching it at 11 30 p.m um there's a line about hot dogs that played i believe at the beginning of this <laughs> 
broadcast right. that everyone was just roaring. And it kind of tells you that this is not going to be a straight ahead anything movie. What is this? You know, it sort of has almost a soap opera feel, but a little bit spoofy. And then later on, it becomes really kind of tragic. And the second time I watched it, I like it felt like a gut punch. So I think you can watch it either way. Um, I think I saw someone very smartly saying if you watch it with a crowd, it plays a little more like a comedy. If you watch it at home, it's on Netflix now. It plays like a like a tragedy or a drama. Um, basically, it's very, very, very loosely based on the Mary Kay Letourneau story. Um, but it's sort of like what would have happened 20 years later when this couple at the center where she's much, much older than he is and, you know, she was a, a predator. Um, what would happen when their kids are uh, are ready to go to college? <laughs> um, and there's an added element in which Natalie Portman is an actress who's going to play this this woman in a what seems like a made-for-TV movie or something and is researching them. So it is a complex film that I would say you can watch two or three times and not have the same take on, but it's definitely one of Todd Haynes's best, and it's definitely worth watching and grappling with. <laughs> okay, so that's dramedy. But I think, Kristen, you've just got a straight-up comedy that you really liked <laughs> this year. Tell us about Joyride. Yes, yes. I do want to also just say... Um, the that May December is an excellent movie, but the movie I'm going to talk about is there's no question what kind of movie this is. You're not going to be grappling with anything except <laughs> with laughter when you see Joyride. So Joyride is a comedy. It's an adult comedy. So there are sex, drug, uh, and all sorts of other kinds of naughty scenes, including gross out scenes, including bodily fluids, all of that. It follows four girlfriends as one of them has to go on a work trip to China and others join on this trip. And they get up to no good. They end up at certain points losing their transportation, uh, having to impersonate K-pop stars, uh, ending up in kind of orgy situations, and so on. And it is just funny, funny, funny the whole way through until the end when I confess I did cry at the end. Because along with all of the hijinks, there are real explorations of what it's like to have lifelong friends versus those friends you meet in college. How do people get along or not get along with each other when you introduce these group of, different groups of friends to each other? What do they bring out in you? And what's being brought out in us when we're being confronted with different things about our identity that maybe um, aren't front and center all the time? Our main character, played by Ashley Park, is a Chinese-American adoptee, and she's on this business trip in China. What does that bring to you know, her sense of self and so on in the story. But I, I want to make clear that, you know, even with those kinds of, you know, heavier topics, it really is, for the most part, just a laugh riot. And the theater I saw it, and I saw it twice and both times, the theater was laughing so loud that there were literal lines I couldn't hear what the next follow-up line was because people were <laughs> laughing so loud. Well, this listener writes, my top movie of 2023 is The Strays. It went completely under the radar. I watched it on Netflix and was blown away by the hilarious thriller about a mother who's trying to run away from her past only for the past to catch her off guard. I'm loving these like lovely little synopses from our listeners. Lisa writes, Nyad really spoke to me as a gripping story that was women-centered while portraying male characters poignantly as well. So rare. As a woman in the same age group as the stars, it pierced the fog of being overwhelmed with family caregiving, uncompleted big creative projects, and the sexism-ageism nexus. I want to see this movie every time I need a shove 
to keep at it. <laughs> and Daniel on Discord asks, I would love to hear some recommendations for the best animated movies of the year if it hasn't mm. been mentioned yet. Ooh, animated movies. Dave, you got one? Dave? I don't. I do not. <laughs> um, my, my, I have a six-year-old. And the yeah, that's why that I, I went to you. <laughs> what about the Super Mario Brothers movie? I don't even remember if that came out this year. Probably <laughs> <It> did. did. <laughs> yeah, oh, that was uh, kind of, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's kind of mixed. Anyone have an animated rec for Daniel? I mean, I would say the Miyazaki movie, which I'd not necessarily show to it child um it's a bit scary but the miyazaki movie the boy and the heron which is out in english dub now as well you know miyazaki is the undisputed master i think um of of animation at this point and it's a it's a tough film uh but if you kind of sink into its dream logic it's really really extraordinary work from you know, it might be his last film. I don't know, but it's it's certainly nearing it. So another film that indirectly confronts the fallout of war in Japan as well. I see. Well, we are talking with Alyssa Wilkinson, Dave Schilling, and Kristen Meinzer, rounding up the best movies of 2023 or the ones that you can miss, you know. <laughs> and I also want to remind listeners that this is a fundraising period for KQED. You are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Well, Lori writes, my favorite film of 2023 was Barbie. I tried to analyze why it was so good and so successful. And after reflection on it for a couple of days, I realized that director Greta Gerwig utilized the tried and true format of Joseph Campbell's The Hero's Journey. It was so exciting to have a film focused on a woman and her journey. Okay, let's just very quickly talk about your reactions to Barbie. I know you all point to it as a reason that you felt like movies made a comeback. You know, they they sort of took center stage in people's lives in ways that they haven't for a really long time, and especially going to the theater and making an event out of it. But what did you actually think of it? Very quickly. Dave, do you think it was a great film, or do you not know yet? <laughs> I don't know yet. Ah. Come back to me. Come back to me in a bit. <laughs> How about you, Kristen? You know, I really imp- appreciated the ambition of the movie. I-, I liked that it was trying to do so many things that a mainstream Hollywood movie wouldn't normally do, like a man-on-man dance fantasy sequence, for example. Uh, I-, I loved some of the ways that it pointed out the misogyny and unfairness of the world. I loved the costumes. I loved the sensibilities of the movie to a great extent. But I was not happy with a lot of the messaging around what is a real woman versus a, an idealized Barbie? And mm. it a lot of the times it seemed to be giving the message, and I, a real woman is a mother. A real woman stands in place so that when her daughter moves forward in life, the daughter can always look back and see her mother staring at her. And I didn't like those messages about a woman's journey once she's a mom is to stay in one place, but also... There is a montage toward the end of the movie really showing what real women are. And so many of the clips really were about motherhood. And in my opinion, a real woman is a lot of different things and not necessarily a mother and definitely not a mother who just murders herself for her daughter. I think this is a really important point. And it's why I don't want to say if it's a great movie or not, because we're not going to know if these ideas, if these um, messages that Kristen is talking about are going to resonate in the future or if people are going to look at it exactly like she is and say, this is, hmm, this is a little problematic and weird and strange and it didn't it didn't carry over into being a classic because it, a classic needs to touch people regardless of the moment. 
the moment is powerful and important and pop culture is important to to deciding if a movie resonates but it's how long does it last how long does it remain important we've we've had a lot of great films um endure and a lot of movies that were very popular at the time kind of wither away yeah Melissa, is there anything you want to add or um, I think it's, you know, it's a it's a really, really fun movie to watch, which uh, honestly I can't say is the reaction I have to a lot of bl- blockbuster level movies because they all seem kind of cookie cutter of one another. Um, and that's what I like about it. And I also think, um, you know, Greta is such a Greta Gerwig is such a talented thinker when she thinks about how to reinvent and subvert people's expectations. And she did it with Lady Bird and she did it with Little Women. And it's exciting to know that she's going to get to keep doing that because this movie was the biggest movie of the year. Um, And it also sends a message, I hope, to Hollywood that actually like women and girls and like people who have sensibility often considered feminine by Hollywood actually go to the movies and would like to see more movies that are interesting to them, which is not how Hollywood usually thinks about their target movie viewer. Well, there's this no right shout out for local documentary director Shaka Jamal's I Am Hope. It follows his experience teaching yoga and mindfulness to kids in the Oakland School District. Beautiful and inspiring. All right, let's do that. One last rec from each of you. You don't have to say why, but just tell me one that we didn't get to that you want listeners to know about. And I'll start with you, Alyssa. Oh, goodness. Um, well, I I put a movie called Godland on my top 10, which I believe is on the Criterion channel and seems to be popping up in screenings again. It's this kind of incredible period drama about a, da- a Danish priest who decides to go to Iceland and start a church there. Okay. And uh, things go wrong. All right. <laughs> great. Dave, Dave, one film, one sentence. Final Sorry, I was on mute. I was on mute. Um <laughs> Napoleon. I know it was controversial and people out there didn't like it, but I thought it was the funniest movie of the year. (laughs) Absolutely hilarious. Kristen, how about you? I am going to also recommend American Fiction. This is the story of a Black scholarly author who writes literature with a capital L and decides on a whim to write a book that includes all the worst stereotypes about Black men in order to pander to white readers it had me laughing, and uh, it asks more questions than it answers. Yay. Kristen Meinzer, co-host of the podcast Movie Therapy with Rafer and Kristen. You can catch the writings of Alyssa Wilkinson at the New York Times and Dave Schilling at LA Times Image. Feel better, Dave. Thanks, all three of you, for coming on to share your insights. Thanks, Caroline Smith, for producing today's segment. We're going to go out on a song from Joyride. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.